Hey, good morning, Austin Oaks Church family. So good to see you before 11 a.m. You did it. Come on, that's good news. Hey, um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18, so if you could grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 18, or your phone, you can go to it. We're going to be primarily looking at the first 11 verses, even though we're going to kind of cover the whole chapter, but primarily landing on the first 11 verses. Now, I'm very aware that today is um, 9-11, and so I wanted to just share something for us as means of reminder. We live when God is sovereign over all nations. I think that's important for us to be mindful of, but also 9-11, this serves as a moment for us to remember what Paul writes in Romans, that we overcome evil by doing good. And so part of that is engaging in the call and the purpose of what it means to follow Jesus. And so this message this morning is actually really a good setup for that. Um, but before we do plow into the passage um, this morning, I wanted to recap a little bit of last week where we talked about having a spiritual Popeye moment. And if you weren't here last week, you'd be like, what is he talking about? And what church did I just walk into? But it was like this recap of like, like Popeye was one of my favorite cartoons, and before he would take his spinach, there was always this circumstance where Bluto would essentially kidnap olive oil, which we strongly don't do, and, and he would always get to that place where he would just say, like, that's all I can stand, and I can't stand no more. And we are using that in, in line of going, where in our spirits do we have that time when we're just internally provoked, burdened, and discontent over the things in our world, in our culture, and what we see that we get to this place of going, man, that's all I can stand and I can't stand no more. And we have to move towards people. And so taking vain, I, we, we challenged the church to get provoked. That was like the point last week was get out there, get into the city, get to know your neighbors, your neighborhoods, and your schools. And so taking um, that advice, I w wanted to kind of just share, like I learned some things in the culture this weekend and my spirit was provoked and I'm really sad that UT lost. You got to become all things to reach all people. They won. That's all I'm going to say. They won. Anywho. It's important for us to understand that following Jesus means that we'll always feel this tension of being eternally, in, uh, being spiritually provoked. But what happens when that doesn't happen or when that's not the norm? Like when you walked out of your last week, you're like, man, God, would you just stir me up? Would you break my heart for the things that break yours? And you're just like, it didn't happen. What do you do then? Or maybe you walk out and you did feel that. Or maybe even if you didn't, like what happens when you start to sense a different type of provoking that stirs up from the inside more in the realm of insecurity? When you start to feel God calling you into something, and the next thing you know, you're feeling the sense of inadequacy or insufficiency. And then you start to feel a little bit fearful of engaging or moving forward. Like, I don't know how to do this. And all of a sudden, that fearfulness and that being scared leads to some sense of worry and anxiety because you don't know the outcomes and you don't know the results. What do you do in that moment? Do you hit pause? On following Jesus. 
Because I think sometimes we got to really like come to grips with the fact that God will call you. He will break you. He will stir you up to do something and move towards people. And if we were also honest, we would be like, yeah, I probably wrestle more with my inadequacies and my insufficiencies. And yes, if I were even more honest, I am afraid. And I am anxious. I think that's important for us to understand because in this story, we're going to see this picture of a normative practice or a normative life of what it means and looks like to follow Jesus. And one of the things that is very clear, following Jesus means you will be provoked by what's out there in the culture and what you're seeing happen in people's hearts and you will be provoked internally. So let's look at this. In Acts chapter 18, could somebody get me a bottle of water, please? I can feel it coming. So, Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Thank you ahead of time. I'll probably get five. Acts 18, verse 1. Okay? Forewarning, we're going to camp out on this one verse for some time. And what's fascinating about, like, these passages in Acts, like, there's sometimes you go through Acts and you're like, well, there's no clear point or no clear principle. So you kind of read it as a story. and You have to kind of navigate between the lines a little bit and kind of grab hold of some themes that are consistent through Acts. And that's what we see here. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, What's fascinating was Paul went to Athens, as we talked about last week, as a waypoint on his way to get to Corinth. It wasn't necessarily part of their strategic plan. It was a place that they stepped, or stopped, and it was supposed to be a rendezvous where Paul or uh, Timothy and Silas, who were collecting offerings from other churches in Philippi and Macedonia in the area, were to connect up with Paul in Athens and then move to Corinth. And if you recall last week, Paul was in Athens, and he walked into the city, into the culture, observing what was happening there. And he got provoked in his spirit because the city was full of idols. His heart broke over the lies that were happening in the culture, and he had a Popeye moment, and he had to engage. It was all he could stand. He can't stand no more, and he moves towards people. He engages with his uh, fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. God fears, and then he starts to evangelize to the philosoph- uh, philosophers of the day, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And it was actually a really hard ground. And I asked myself the question as I was reading this this week, it's like, why didn't Paul wait for Silas and Timothy as was planned? Like, what was it that all of a sudden, like, caused Paul to get up and move towards Corinth? Was it because he wasn't being receptive or like they weren't receiving the message that well in Athens? Was it because there was great indifference there? Thank you so much. Thank you. And one for yourself. There you go. Like I, I, like I started wrestling with that question a little bit. Like was Paul weary Okay, like, we can't blame the guy because, like, his previous journeys and interactions in other cities were one of oppression, of persecution, of being misunderstood, of being driven out. Like, that's got to take a toll on someone. 
Paul saw that when we prepare for move God, God eventually ends up moving. And we saw that when God moves, the enemy moves. And Paul experienced that. But also, Paul experienced that when God moves, the enemy moves, but God wins. He experienced all of that. But for some reason, something was happening inside of Paul that he feels the need to go to Corinth. It's a 50-mile trek on foot to go from Athens to Corinth. 50 miles. That, that takes some time. 50 miles to think about what has happened. 50 miles to begin to anticipate what could happen or will happen. To forecast what obstacles and issues will come. Will he face persecution again? Will he even find a home to live in? He doesn't have the money to live off of, so he's like, he's got to get a job so he can make ends meet. Like, was Paul starting to get overwhelmed, maybe, with the culture that he was engaging with? Because Paul surely knew what Corinth was. Like, Corinth was very clear. Like, when people knew the city of Corinth, they understood what that city represented. And I got to imagine Paul going, this is going to be hard. Like, I, I know it's so easy for us to simply think a lot of times that, like, Paul is, like, superhuman and superman. He never gets scared. He's always obedient. He's always on point and all these kind of things. But, friends, let's just be honest. That's not helpful. Because if Paul is, like, that kind of person, listen, that's a bad example. Because then I'm going to start to feel guilt and shame because I'm like, that's not me. If that's the example and the model that we need to be, like, I get scared sometimes. I question myself sometimes, and if Paul wasn't like that, this is not encouraging. So let's talk about the city of Corinth for a moment, because this is absolutely important. Corinth could be considered like New York and Las Vegas put together. Like that, that's what the city of Corinth was like. 750,000 people lived in this city. And this city was known as the commercial and immoral metropolis. Like, it was known as that. In fact, the phrase, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, wasn't coined by Las Vegas. I would, even, I, I would be like, no, it's what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Like, that's the idea of this city. Every building there is, no, is not any older than 100 years old. It's a flourishing city of political power. It was the capital, the Roman capital in that region. It had great wealth and great innovation because it had two strategic seaports. And it was also rampant in sexual immorality and liberal sexual thought because it was just part of the norm of that life. In fact, there was a saying, and it wasn't a compliment. If someone said, hey, you're living like a Corinthian, that wasn't like, oh, thank you. That was like a massive insult. Paul knows exactly what he's walking into. I mean, Corinth had to have been a difficult and intimidating place to follow Jesus. Without a doubt. It had to have been a difficult and even intimidating place to try to tell people about Jesus. Right? It's a city that's entrenched in idolatry, where lies has the heart of that people, it's self-sufficient and proud because of their intellect, of their wealth, and their political power, and even their cultural influence. That's a hard place to follow Jesus, and it's an intimidating place to go and tell people about Jesus. Timothy uh, Keller, or Tim Keller, 
Like he always used to say that if you wanted to know what idols or what has the heart of a city, you look at its buildings. Look for the most impressive structures, the ones that seem to be like ornate or even the largest or the ones that have the largest capacity. And you go, once you recognize that, you can pretty much discern the idols of that city. Aphrodite, the temple of Aphrodite was smack in the center of Corinth. Aphrodite was the goddess of sex. It was on a 1,900-foot hill. And every day, thousands of women who were priestesses would descend from that hill and engage in prostitution in the city to help people fulfill their act of worship. That was the norm. And if you want to understand why did Paul talk so much about purity and sexual immorality in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it's because that was the culture that would be an intimidating place to go to. Why do I share this? Corinth really isn't all that different than our city. Or any city, for that matter. But let's just think about Austin for a moment. I love Austin. I love this, this city. It's the seat of political power in our state of Texas. Right? We have a massive and influential university that seats well over 100,000 people in their shrine. <laughs> Austin has great cultural influence. Right? Keep Austin weird. We got, we're the live music capital of the world. These are all good things. I love these things. We got ACL on South by Southwest. Austin is like one of the major hubs of tech and innovation. It's a wealth city. It's a boom city. In fact, um, demographers are even saying, like, real soon, if not already, like, the emerging generations, millennial and down, will be the overwhelming majority of this city. I mean, this, this city can, at times, feel intimidating to follow Jesus in. How do I engage in millennials and Gen Y and Gen Z? I don't think this way. I don't act this way. I don't live like this way. And it can feel very intimidating to even try or make an effort to share Jesus with people in this city. With that in mind, this is what Paul was walking into. Paul had to have been praying and wrestling with all sorts of things as he was heading towards Corinth. And so I've asked this question, what was Paul's disposition? What was happening on the inside as he was moving towards Corinth with the full knowledge that he was going to live on mission? Paul isn't Superman. And I'm so incredibly thankful our scriptures are very honest and very sobering. We don't have any other hero in this Bible outside of Jesus. Praise God for that. What could we assume about Paul's disposition heading to Corinth? First and second Corinthians is oftentimes going to be this beautiful picture of Paul's experience in this city. First Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 3. Look at this. When I came to you, here he's saying to them, as I was heading to Corinth, 
on my way and as I entered and even as I was first engaging. Brothers and sisters, I came ready knowing to announce the mystery of God. I didn't come with brilliance or speech or wisdom. In other words, what he was saying is, is I am not equal to the great orators of the time. And Corinth had a lot of great orators. And the orators and the public speakers, that's like the celebrity of the day. These are the pop cultural icons, right? And he's like, I didn't come like them. I don't have a following. I'm not a great speaker. I'm not a great debater. I decided to know nothing among you. Like, I had nothing to offer you because I don't have any of that pedigree. The only thing I came to you was Jesus, to speak Jesus and him crucified. Now look at this. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Last week we saw how Paul was spiritually provoked. But this week we see how Paul is internally provoked. And what is provoking him? His weakness, his inadequacies, his insufficiencies. Yes, Paul felt inadequate to the task. He's like, I'm not one of these great orators. I don't know how I'm going to do this. He's feeling that way. Like, how many of you have thought that? Like, man, I want to share Jesus with so-and-so, or I want to do this with my neighbor, or I feel engaged to deal with racism, or whatever it is, and you're just like, I feel inadequate. Or you feel God prompting you and stirring you and challenging you and you feel internally provoked. I'm not sufficient for this. I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how. Well, that sense, that became a story that Paul started to think about and it led then to the second one. He started to feel scared. This isn't the fear of respect. This is scared. I became scared. And when you deal with fear like that for too long, guess what happens? It tips over into trembling, which in the Greek means anxiety. Paul became anxious. And you only become anxious when you're trying to predict the future. What will they do? What will they say? What will happen? What will they think of me? He's trying to predict all the outcomes and all the things. And he's got this whole mosh of Just stuff happening. I feel inadequate, insecure, insufficient. I'm scared. I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to listen. Man, this is going to be tough. It's going to be dark. Ah. And then he gets anxious. Anybody ever been there? Paul comes in that moment. Why bring this up? Because, friends, as we follow Jesus, we will always find ourselves constantly provoked by what's out there there and what's in here. You will always find yourself constantly being provoked by what's out there and what's in here. And that's the point. So what do you do? What happens when we are provoked inside of here? Like, what do we do when we feel inadequate for the task of being sent, of telling people about Jesus. Like, what do we do when we feel scared and insufficient, when we know we should be investing our lives into other people, but we're like, man, if they got to know me, they're going to run for the hills because I don't know this and this and this and this. And you know what's tempting to do in that moment? When you feel that weakness and that fear and that anxiousness, you know what's tempting and what often we cave into? We ignore it. The burden, the calling, we, we, we downplay it. Ah, maybe that wasn't God. Maybe, maybe I need to pray about it more. 
Or maybe you go, I'm not able, I'm not smart enough, I'm not this enough, I don't know this enough, so there's no way God would be calling me to do this. Friends, we cannot relegate following Jesus down to just good behavior and growing academically in biblical knowledge. Because what we're going to see is this picture of what it means to follow Jesus. We live in a culture that is not too unlike Corinth. And I know it can be intimidating to follow Jesus. And I know it can be intimidating to tell other people about Jesus, specifically as our culture today is becoming more and more post-Christian and more and more anti-Christian. But friends, as I've been engaging in culture and people and millennials and down, what I'm discovering is they have troubles more with the institution of the church and they love to talk about Jesus. So what does Paul do as he's feeling these things? He chose to still follow Jesus because he understood what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to propose to you a simple mindset of what it means and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And I want you to come with me as I unpack this. So think of three things. When you say, I follow Jesus... These three things should be part of that definition. One, you live sent. You're following Jesus. He's going somewhere. He's on mission. Second, you invest in the people. That's the biblical word discipleship. And third, you speak Jesus. What does it mean and look like to follow Jesus? It looks like you live sent. It looks like you invest into people. And it looks like you are speaking Jesus. So with all of this on the forefront of our minds, let's finally get to verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all of the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers or leather makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews, excuse me, and Greeks. So we now are introduced to a normal couple, a couple that are not in full-time paid vocational ministry. Aquila and Priscilla, they're running a business in Italy. We don't know if it was Rome, it's irrelevant. But Claudius commanded all of the Jews to flee Italy because there was turmoil happening in the city of Rome over this man named Christus, which in Latin means Christ, right? And so there was debate amongst the Jews in Rome to the degree that it was causing riots and disturbances because they were debating, is Jesus the Messiah or not? So Aquila and Priscilla become refugees, and they choose. They chose to land in Corinth because it's a great metropolis with great commerce. They're business people. They're trying to make a life and trying to make a living, and they saw it as a great opportunity to build a lucrative business. We don't even know if they were followers of Jesus at this point. Surely they knew about Jesus, and surely they knew the debate going on about Jesus being the Messiah. But what we see here is Paul connecting up with Aquila Aquila and Priscilla. 
And I think this is a really sweet, tender thing of God to do because Paul is already coming with this disposition of discouragement and he bumps into this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and he also, Paul's carrying this burden of like, how am I going to make ends meet and where am I going to stay? And they come together, Aquila and Priscilla and Paul now operating this business of leather making or tent making and they open up their home for Paul to stay there. I think this is a really beautiful thing to help us see Something that the call to follow Jesus isn't just for the professionals, but it's actually for everybody who follows Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla are ordinary people. They're business people. They're a married couple. They knew. Eventually they knew about Jesus because there's no way that Paul didn't talk about Jesus. There's no way they didn't see the burden and the struggle that Paul had every day after work. Maybe he would go get a bite to eat and then he would go to the synagogue and he would try. That word try means like he was struggling, trying so hard to persuade his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters to say yes to Jesus. And when he'd come home disappointed and frustrated and surely Aquila and Priscilla heard about how Jesus Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and how he was the son of God. And they probably also saw in Paul his vulnerabilities, his fear and inadequacy. Like, I I love this part because they're seeing something in Paul. And Paul is intentionally investing into Aquila and Priscilla. Like, this isn't just random. It's Paul's living sense. Like, I want us to connect this. As Paul is living sent, even in the midst of his fear and inadequacies, he's intentionally pouring his life into this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who thought they were just planting and building a business in Corinth, but God had other plans. And what we see is that they eventually say to Jesus, we're all in because of how they saw Paul live. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy finally arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was with Jesus. Now we have a small group. We got Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, and guaranteed Silas and Timothy were now also living with Aquila and Priscilla. They finally show up. Well, who are Silas and Timothy? We can assume who Silas is because of what we know of Timothy. Timothy was a dis- uh, one who was following Paul. Paul was discipling Timothy. These two men were intentionally invited by Paul to go with him on his mission. To watch him. To see him. To talk with him. To learn about Jesus. To see how Paul engages with, with the city, with culture, with other people. He was living sent, investing into people, and always speaking Jesus. And they saw that. So, like, this is the part where you kind of got to read between the lines here in these verses. Because, guaranteed, Silas and Timothy were observing how Paul was investing into Aquila and Priscilla. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul's last letter, says to Timothy... Timothy, what you've heard from me and what you've seen from me entrust into reliable people. In other words, invest into people 
Make disciples. You've heard me talk about the way of Jesus. You heard me talk about this, and you've seen me do it. They saw how Paul did that with Aquila and Priscilla, and I think there's something important here. Because Aquila and Priscilla, we would just say, they're ordinary lay people who became significant powerhouses for the kingdom of God because they simply chose to follow Jesus and not hit pause. We will see a little bit later in the story, they would go to Ephesus, leave their business in Corinth as Paul invited them into it. They would go to Ephesus, Paul would leave them behind, and they became disciple makers in that city. So much so, they invested into this young, upstart, preacher, evangelist, apologetic person named Apollos. And they poured into him. They taught him about the Holy Spirit and the full picture of the gospel. They were just ordinary people. God used them in significant ways. I love that. But what I also love here is I want, I, I want this. I want this to be so clear. Okay? I want this to be so clear. This word occupied in verse 5, like, just like, hit me. I was like, and I thought it meant like, man, he was just all about Jesus at that point and just going to, and then I dug into it a little bit more and what I discovered was something fascinating. Because now Silas and Timothy have come with the financial offering. Paul no longer had to work and now he had a lot more time to give himself to evangelism. That, that's what this is. But as I was thinking about this, I was like, man, Paul gives us a model that challenges us and encourages us because there were seasons when Paul had to work hard to provide for his means. He was like in a normal nine to five job and there were other times when he was able to be like a full-time pastor. He modeled for us hard work, responsibility, integrity, but what he really modeled for us here is he leveraged his vocation for the gospel. This is why I want to land. When Paul had to work a nine-to-five job, he didn't see it as a means to an end, to get financial security, to do whatever it was. He saw his vocation in that moment as an opportunity to leverage the gospel, to be able to interact with people he normally wouldn't be able to interact with. He recognized that this is the arena that God has sent me into, and he would engage with people, build relationships with people, see if any doors would open to have further conversations with them. He had a very intentional purpose for his vocation. What does that tell us? That should tell us that for a follower of Jesus, everything in our lives, your vocation, your neighborhood, everything in your life ought to be leveraged for the gospel. Your job is not just a random nine-to-five job where you punch in and punch out as a follower of Jesus. Because when you said yes to Jesus, your purpose has radically changed. Go into all the world. That's what it means to live sent. Your vocation. Friends, what would change in your life if you saw your vocation as the area where God was sending you? What if you saw your neighborhoods differently than just a convenient place to live because the schools are great? 
Like what if you saw that as the, the area where God has sent you and planted you? What would change? I know what would happen. You would feel internally provoked. You would wrestle with inadequacy and insufficiency and fear and anxiousness. And, and then you would have to choose faith or fear. But Paul moved into this. Like Paul in this whole scenario. He's wrestling with his insufficiency, his inadequacies. Look at First and Second Corinthians. It's the most vulnerable you'll ever see Paul. He talks about his weakness. He talks about how he suffered. He talks about all these things. And that's what he was going through in this city. And so as he's preaching to the Jews and God-fearers in the temple, verse 6, they opposed him and reviled him. They slandered him. And he shook out the garments and said to him, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. In other words, that's not like a grotesque, like, it's like, hey, I fulfilled my responsibility. I, I, I didn't withhold anything from you. I told you about Jesus. So I'm free from that. I know I did that. Now the burden of belief is on you. That's what Paul is saying there. And he goes on to the Gentiles, and from there he left and went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So this guy lives right next door to synagogue, and eventually Titius becomes a Christ follower. And right next door is the synagogue, and Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. All of a sudden, a move of God starts to break out. But Paul was being opposed and being slandered. And I love this response because I think this is such a challenging conviction. Paul is saying, I fulfilled my responsibility. I am without blame. God is my witness. I did not withhold telling you about Jesus. Ah. When you move from your neighborhoods, could you say that? If you were to move from a job to another job and you knew there was people on your heart that God wanted you to talk to, could you say that? Ah. Like, that, that's, that's a powerful thing that he says here. And I think, like, we need to be, like, challenged by this. He's like, I, I didn't withhold. You said no. And then he goes on, builds a relationship with Titius and, and with Crispus, and they become believers. And the church is now planted in Corinth, and God is moving and doing all sorts of things. But how is this happening? Because Paul was fearless and the most amazing apostle in the world? No. He was weak and trembling and scared. He became because he was just preaching and speaking Jesus. And this is what I want to share with you. And I love that Sam talked about this. It's one of those moments where, like, we didn't talk about it. God must have been putting it on our heart. So I think that's something for us to hear as a church. And it's going to be this. Paul knew and he embraced his gospel responsibility. He knew and he embraced his gospel responsibility. He knew what he could do, which also meant he knew what he couldn't do. And I, found, and I actually believe that it was in this context of Corinth that he learned this. What does it look like and what does it mean to follow Jesus? You live sent, you invest into people, and you speak Jesus. It also means, friends... That as we uphold our gospel responsibility, it means that the result of the gospel isn't our responsibility. The burden 
of gospel fruit isn't for you to carry. And I think the quicker we understand that, the quicker we'll be able to move away from being in, feeling the inadequacy and the insufficiency. The quicker we will move away from fear and the quicker we will settle that anxiousness because it's not on us. That's the point Paul would even say, which we quote all the time, he came to him in weakness and weakness and weakness and God did this because he wanted to show his power through his weakness. Other people would say, it's not Paul, it's God through Paul. This is awesome. This ought to be so encouraging. Paul took the burden of the seeing the results of the gospel off of his shoulders and left it with God. But Paul did carry the burden of his responsibility to follow Jesus. He didn't let go of that burden. He knew his burden was, am I living sent? Am I investing into people? And am I speaking Jesus? He's sowing seeds. He would even say, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In Romans 1, he says, I'm obligated to both Jews and Gentiles. In other words, like I have a responsibility to people because Jesus came for me. And he came for you. And because of that, I'm responsible now. It's my joy to be salt and light, which is a a responsibility. We're called to be ambassadors of God, which is a responsibility. But the effect of that, the fruit of that, is not for you to carry. And I know at times it can feel frustrating because it doesn't happen as quick as we wish. I prayed, God, why ain't you doing this? I shared it. Why didn't it happen? Sometimes it happens quick and sometimes it goes slow. But God is the one in charge of all of that. Friends, following Jesus means that you and I, like, I want us to grab hold of this. You and I, we have a responsibility to the gospel. We don't walk the talk. We don't like to talk about that because we're like, no, it's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. Yes, it is. Your salvation is all about grace. and It's all about mercy. But it doesn't mean that you're off the hook when obedience <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm saying. It's like if we follow Jesus, if we say we follow Jesus, this is part of it. And I think a lot of times we just go, pause. Let me figure some things out. And maybe I'll unpause it. Now watch this. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed there for a year and a half, teaching the word of God. In other words, evangelizing and discipling. That's what he's doing. And I found myself going, what was he afraid of? Because, like, why did God say that unless Paul was feeling fear? And why, why did God say keep on speaking unless Paul was being tempted to stop speaking? Especially in a light that people are coming to know Jesus. Well, Paul knows that more people who become Christians, the greater the persecution comes. So maybe Paul in that moment got scared. And God in his grace and his gentleness and his loving kindness said, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to that fear. Don't close your mouth. Don't stop talking about Jesus. Don't do it, Paul. Don't do it. Why? 
Because there are people in this city who will say yes to me. I am building my church in this city, Paul. You can't plan it. You don't know who. But you just keep doing it. I know what I'm doing. And so it hit me. I was like, oh my goodness. If Paul was to give in to his fear... That tells me that Paul was making this about himself and not about Jesus. That sucks. When we give in to fear, when we choose to ignore our gospel responsibility, the reality is we're making it about us and not about God's work and God's heart or other people. When we focus on our inadequacies and our anxiousness and worry how things will go and worry how people will see us, friends, we're just wrapped up in our man-made, self-promoted identity. So let me tell you something that I know is true of every single one of us. Most of the time, Christians are not afraid to serve. They're not afraid to serve. They might just use an excuse they're too busy. That's another point. But we tend to be afraid to speak. Why? Why? We're afraid we're going to lose something. We're afraid we're going to be misunderstood. Ridiculed. What are we going to lose? We've, some of us might lose your job. Like, Straight up. But a lot of times I think what we fear the most is how people see us and even how we see ourselves. And we give ourselves over to pleasing people, really pleasing ourselves. All the while ignoring the heart of God and all the while ignoring people and the eternal state of their hearts. Keep speaking. Jesus, Paul, don't stop. There's people there. There's people there. I love this because in this story we see this. Paul was living sent. He was investing in the people, Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila. They become disciple makers and powerful evangelists in Ephesus. We see Silas and Timothy being invested into and all of them replicated that same life. Living sent, investing into people and speaking Jesus. God promises him, I'm with you, Paul. I'm with you. No one will harm you. Friends, those are the same promises God gives you. Matthew 28. Go into all the world. Live sent. Make disciples. Go into all the world baptizing people. Making disciples of every nation. Teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And... I am with you to the end of the age. Acts 1.8, you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and then you'll be my witnesses. Following Jesus means you live sent. It's the same promises. Nobody can harm you because Paul already tells us in Romans 8, through the Holy Spirit, nothing could ever separate you from the love of Christ. You have nothing to lose. Your security is not in your job. It's not in your identity. It's not in your social status. Your, your security is in Christ and Christ alone. It's the same promise. Church, keep speaking Jesus because you do not know who will say yes to Jesus. It's not on you to see that happen, but it's on you to carry that responsibility 
to tell people about Jesus. So let's make this real practical. Real practical. Three things, and I want you to start thinking about this. Following Jesus looks like living sent, investing in people, and speaking Jesus. What does it mean to live sent? As you already heard me say, and I'm going to repeat it for emphasis, that means your job is your mission field. Your family is your mission field. Your neighborhood, your school, your third places of hanging out, all of those areas, God has sent you. And yes, what about my relationship with Jesus? Yes, I like to think of it as this tandem. Living sent means I'm abiding in Jesus. John 15 As I abide, I remain, I get encouraged, I grow, my sin is being changed and transformed. Yes, but then he produces fruit. And who's that fruit for in essence? So yeah, living set means I abide in Jesus, but it also means I abound in good works. I go. It's both and. And yes, you, follower of Jesus, in the seats, you don't have to be in full-time ministry. That's the point of the story. It's you. You can go. Yes, you have insecurities. And yes, you have inadequacies. And yes, you're insufficient. All of us are. And yes, you will be scared. Absolutely. And yes, you're going to be anxious and worried. Absolutely. Choose faith over fear. Secondly, invest into people. Invest into people because if you live sent, it inevitably leads to gospel-type relationships. Invest into them. Help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. That's investing your life and your story and your experience into other people. Paul constantly modeled this. He never did ministry alone if he didn't have to. Constantly inviting people with him. Constantly sending people out. We see this modeled in this story. Entrust into reliable people. which you've seen and heard. I mean, friends, we make this so hard. Just ask people to have coffee with them. You don't need to say, hey, you want to get coffee? Because I want to disciple you. (laughs) No, no, you're not Jesus. (laughs) Only Jesus can say, follow me, right? Yeah, you can have coffee with your mind going, I want to, I want to, get to know you. I want to invest into you. I want to build a relationship with you. And it's not a, 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 you know, a bait and switch tactic. It's authentic. You love them. You're moving towards them. Just ask people. Invite people over for dinner. Just do it. You don't need to have a conversation about helping them like confess their sins on day one. Paul didn't do that either. I'm convinced of that. Move towards people. Parents, I hear this all the time. Well, my relationship, I'm investing into my kids. Yes, you are and you should be. That is your responsibility. But also be aware. They're watching you. So are you investing your life into other people so they see that modeled as well? You're not off the hook of investing into other people if it's just your family. That's important. You want to know a great way to start investing to see the culture start to shift? Invest in our youth. Can I be, this was not planned. I'm going to, if you don't want your toe step, pull it back, but I'm going to. 
I should never hear our children's director say she's struggling to find volunteers. That, that's kind of sad. Our youth, young adult, all of them should be invested into, we should be investing into them constantly, overwhelmingly, yes. Men, I'm just going to pull this one out there, a teaser. We're going to launch a men discipleship movement starting in October. You can expect to hear more about that, and I know your wives would love you more if you did it. <laughs> yeah. Live sent. Invest in people. Speak Jesus. And I want to ask this question. Is your commitment to Jesus causing you to risk anything at present? Is your commitment to Jesus causing you to risk anything at present? Take gospel risks. Take gospel risks. You want to get excited about seeing God move? Take a risk. Move towards someone. It might not go the way you think, but God will work. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means you're going to be provoked out there and in here. It means you live sent. You invest in the people and you speak Jesus. We're going to have a time of communion now and I'm going to encourage you to grab this. And I can't think of a better way to end this message, honestly, than to celebrate communion. Because we, as we do this, this is a sacrament that Jesus gave us to remind ourselves of the gospel. And what is the gospel? I like to think of it starting out with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, I have that verse and I want to throw it up there. Jesus says, the Father has sent me. Now I send you. Why do we embrace this life of following Jesus? It's because this is what he did. He was sent so that we could be made free, so that we could be saved, so we could be restored, we could be redeemed. Our hearts could be made alive and we could be in relationship with God again. And he was sent. He invested into humanity. And he always speaks truth and he always speaks grace. I just want you to dwell on that for a moment. Think about that. That he came for you. Like, I love that. He came for you and for me. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
And I love this last part. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or you are remembering, you are evangelizing, talking about the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take together. We're going to move into a a time of worship, but I want to do two things. I asked our elders and their wives to come up to the sides of this room to pray. And I want to invite two things. One, if you've never given your life to Jesus, this is your day. Today is the day of salvation. Receive the gift of life given to you. But secondly, I want to speak to you who've been following Jesus and maybe you've hit the pause button. If you feel challenged or stirred, convicted, like you haven't been upholding your gospel responsibility or you haven't been living sent or you haven't been investing in people or you haven't had anybody invest into you, I want you to come up for prayer. I want you to pray with the elders of this church and their wives and to just say, God, forgive me. Give me the faith to follow you, to hit on pause and to leave the results in your hands. Maybe even use it as a time of confession. God, I feel insufficient. I feel inadequate. I'm scared and I'm anxious to do what it is I believe you're asking me to do. Confess that. Allow the Lord to speak to you. Allow yourself to be prayed over. Lord, I ask that you administer to our hearts in this time. Lord, I pray that as we end this time, we would be very aware that our security is not in this world. It's not in our competencies. It's not in our feelings. It's not in our wealth. It's not in any that our security is found in Christ and Christ alone. Lord, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that if there's anybody in this room that needs to say yes to Jesus, that this would be that day they would say yes. They would come up and receive prayer. You came not to offer a religion, but a relationship. And Lord, I also want to pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. If they need to simply just take an act of repentance and confession, Lord, I ask that you would stir that up. I pray that you unleash an army of people here at Austin Oaks Church who would live sent, who would invest their lives into people, and who would not stop speaking about Jesus. And I really do want to encourage you, church, if you feel a nudge or a desire, have the courage to come on up and to be prayed for. Don't miss that opportunity.